All right. So a question for you all to get started. What is your dream vacation? You ever think about that? It's fun to imagine, isn't it? Okay, imagine it's just a typical day for you. It's like a Tuesday at like 11.03 in October, okay? Normal day, your phone rings, and you're really curious about what it is because it's an unknown number. So some of you, you would, you would cancel it. You, you wouldn't answer it. I'm always like, oh, who's this? You answer it because you never know if it might be this. The person on the other end says, hey, congratulations. You just won a week-long, all-expense-paid, all-inclusive vacation. And the best part is you get to choose what that vacation is, where you're going to go. And it's for you and your family. Or if it's just you, it's for you and your best friend. Week long, all expense paid, all inclusive vacation. Where are you going to go? What is it that's going to create the best experience for you in this vacation? Are you going to Hawaii or the Swiss Alps or Cancun or Machu Picchu? Like where, where are you going to go? Are you taking a cruise? Are you taking your family to Disney World? Are, are you going to Venice? I mean, the options are endless, right? What is it that would create that perfect experience of a vacation for you? Or for our kids in here? How about this? How about, how about, <laughs> you're a, you wake up tomorrow, your, let's just pretend your birthday is next week, okay? And, and tomorrow, your parents say, hey, so today is Christmas, but next week is your birthday, and we want to throw you a birthday party. And here's the deal. It can be whatever you want it to be. You can go wherever you want to go. You can eat whatever you want to eat. You can invite whoever you want to invite. We will do whatever you want to do, no questions asked. What would be that perfect birthday party experience for you? Okay, we'll keep going so they don't have too much time to think about that, okay? It's fun to think about. It's fun to allow our minds to create a perfect experience for us. To allow our imaginations to just throw off any inhibitions or restrictions like money, time, relationships, logistics. And just think about what it would be that would make the perfect experience. What about Christmas? What is it that makes a perfect experience? Christmas experience. You know, another way to ask this would be like, what is Christmas to you? How do you think about Christmas? Is a perfect Christmas defined by who you are with, who you spend time with, what you eat, the gifts that are given and received? Is it about your family being together, about baking your favorite recipes and singing your favorite songs? Is it doing all the traditional Christmas things, whatever those might be for your family? Okay, what is it that defines your personal Christmas experience? You know, for me, growing up in my household, the perfect Christmas experience meant that everything went according to plan, and the plan was always the same year after year after year. Okay, And so what we would do is on Christmas Eve, we would make homemade ravioli, which was delicious. And then in the evening, we would stick that in the oven and head to church. We would come back from church. It would be ready. We would make a Caesar salad. We would sit down and we would eat homemade ravioli and Caesar salad, listening to the same piano Christmas music that we listen to every year. And then we would have a cookie for dessert. 
We would get jammies on. We would go to bed. The next morning at 7 a.m. we would wake up. My parents would have coffee. My sister and I would have cinnamon toast. And then we would go into the living room and we would open stockings. And then we would come out of the living room. And then we would eat the egg bake. And we'd have some grapefruit. And then we would go back in and we would open presents. And then, guess what? Christmas was over. That was, that's just what we did year after year after year. And if one of those things didn't happen, it was like Christmas didn't happen. Like, if I didn't eat egg bake and grapefruit on December 25th, like, there was no Christmas. It was part of what Christmas was to me. You know, maybe the fact that you're here this morning, just coming to church with your family on Christmas Eve, it's part of that Christmas experience for you and your family. But is this what Christmas is? You're right. See, we, we might have different ideas about what constitutes a dream vacation, the most epic birthday party. We also probably have different ideas about what constitutes a perfect Christmas. You know, if you've watched any TV in the past month, then you have seen ads that tell you that Christmas is about a personalized experience, an individualized experience. Whether that experience involves like a brand new Lexus with a bow on top in your driveway like I got for my wife this year, or, or if it's eating that handful of Chex Mix with great Aunt Karen in the kitchen. Like whatever it is, it's, Christmas is about this individualized experience. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? Don't get me wrong. You go home, ladies, and there's a, there's a Lexus in your driveway that your husband got for you. Like enjoy that. That's fine. But is that what it's all about? Getting together with family, exchanging gifts, making family recipes, these Christmas moments, these Christmas experiences, they are wonderful things. They can and should be enjoyed. You know, for some of us, Christmas, it's more of a difficult season. It's a reminder of who we're not with or what we're not able to enjoy. And it's difficult for us to experience those personalized Christmas moments that everyone else seems to have. But again, is that what Christmas is? So my goal this morning, it is to help us orient our attention and affection away from the subjective experiences of Christmas. And on to the objective reality and implications of Christmas. And so we will begin by asking not the question, what is Christmas to you? What makes the perfect Christmas experience for you? But the question simply is, what is Christmas? And if you know your Bible, or even if you haven't read your Bible all that much, then you probably understand that Christmas centers around the birth of a little boy named Jesus. And this birth took place a little over 2,000 years ago in a barn outside a small, obscure village called Bethlehem. And it's true, that's what Christmas centers around. It's, it's a celebration of the birth of Jesus. We read about this in Matthew 1 or in Luke 2. If you want a passage to read with your family this, this morning or this evening, 
I would encourage you, open up to Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Open up to Luke 2, 1 through 20. Read the account of the Christmas story. Talk about it. Worship Christ as you read this passage. And as you study these passages, what you will see is it was no ordinary birth. Right? No other child in the history of the world has received such a welcome as Jesus did. No other birth was so greatly anticipated and so remarkably celebrated. See, when Jesus was born, the skies exploded with angels singing glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to the people he favors. No other baby has received such a welcome. But do you know why? Here's what the Bible tells us about the person of Jesus. In Colossians 1, it says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by Him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and by Him all things hold together. Colossians 2.9 says the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. Hebrews 1.3 says the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. And this is not just true of Jesus as an adult. This has been true since the very moment of Jesus' conception. In Matthew, when he was born, it says they called him Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. God with us. The eternal and timeless God entered the realm of time. The omnipresent God became confined to a human body. God, the Son, became a human being, and in doing so, he acquired all of the limitations of what it means to be a human. This is what Christmas is. It it celebrates the birth of God himself. And if this is what Christmas is, then why do our hearts so often drift towards making Christmas about anything less? Why, why is it? Like, it's in me. I imagine it's in a lot of you. We, we long for a Christmas experience rather than a greater sense of awe and wonder at the grace and humility of our Savior. Why is that? I think there's many reasons. One, it's just easier isn't it? It's just easier. Two, there's absolutely nothing in our culture that is working to draw our hearts towards Jesus. Our culture is working very hard to draw our hearts away from Jesus and towards materialism and individualized experiences. But here's what I think the biggest reason is. Why why we want to make Christmas about something less than what it is. It's because we don't fully grasp why Jesus came. See, we might intellectually understand why, or we might not. But even if you and I can articulate why Jesus came, the fullness 
of the implications and the eternal significance of his coming in most cases at most times for most of us can seem out of reach it can seem out of grasp you know if you've been with us again the last two weeks we've been in galatians 4 to answer this question why did jesus come why did he come and i want to by way of review just survey those four reasons that tim gave us last week so if you've got your bibles you want to open up to galatians chapter 4 i would encourage you to do that we're going to start in verse 4 galatians 4 verse 4 it says this when the time came to completion god sent his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons okay so the very first reason jesus came was so that we might receive sonship from god we've been adopted as sons of god verse six and because you are sons god sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying abba father so that's the second reason that jesus came so that we might have the holy spirit he's given us his spirit in coming verse 7 so you are no longer a slave but a son so now in christ we have freedom jesus came to give us freedom finishing verse 7 and if a son then god has made you an heir so finally we've received an inheritance and this inheritance as tim explained last week it's it's more about the inheritance of our position before god as his loved sons and daughters than it is about any possession that we might receive as we might understand a worldly inheritance today so those are the four reasons that tim walked through this morning i want to provide one more and i think this one more reason is the reason that sits over these other four sonship the spirit freedom and inheritance they are really the fruits of this overarching reason why did jesus come he came to redeem us he came to give us redemption look again at verse four when the time came to completion god sent his son born of a woman born under the law why to redeem us jesus came to redeem us what is this word redeem what is redemption what does it mean i appreciate this definition from legan duncan here's what he says redemption means to secure the release or recovery of persons or things by the payment of a price this is redemption to secure the release or recovery of persons or things by the payment of a price jesus came to redeem us so jesus came to secure our release from what he came to secure our recovery for what and i think grasping this is the key to understanding what christmas is if christmas centers around the first coming of jesus and jesus then came to redeem us then here's what i want to do remember i said my goal was to orient our attention and our affection away from the subjective experiences of christmas whatever those may be as good and wonderful as they may be and onto the objective reality and implications of christmas and so to do this 
We want to dive into redemption. We don't want to dive more into the definition of redemption. We're not going to dive into the doctrine of redemption or the idea of redemption. What we're going to do is we are going to dive into the true story of redemption. And this story, it begins with the all-powerful, all-wise, all-loving, eternally existing triune God. And for his glory, God created the heavens and the earth and everything in them. He created the stars and the moon and the sun. He created the trees and the birds and the fish and the animals. And God created people. And God placed his people in a garden in Eden to work it and watch over it. And they lived in this garden in perfect harmony with one another, with creation, and with their creator. Everything was perfect. There was no guilt or shame or sorrow or longing. There was perfect intimacy between Adam and Eve, between Adam and Eve and God. God was in perfect relationship with his people. His people were in perfect relationship with him. But this perfect, intimate relationship did not last. And we get to Genesis 3. We read all of that in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and then we get to Genesis 3. Genesis 3 starts like this. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, You can't eat from the tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat it or touch it, or you will die. No, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So what happened? What did sin break? Adam and Eve, they covered themselves. They hid from one another. Sin had broken this perfect intimacy and relationship that they had with one another. And then we read in verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? What else did sin break? It broke the perfect, intimate relationship that God had with his people. And they told God, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Sin broke the perfect intimacy that we were created to experience with our creator. And the chapter ends with God sending Adam and Eve away from the garden, away from his presence, away from the perfect intimacy he, he, he had created them for, away from the source of all goodness and life. But God did drop a hint that he would restore 
what sin had broken. He would fix this problem that sin ushered in. But here's the thing. Because of Adam and Eve's choice to reject God's authority, their hearts had become corrupted with sin. And every human heart born from Adam was and is and will be corrupted with sin. Sin broke the world. Look around the world today. What do you see? You see nations at war with one another. You see widespread starvation and disease and death. You see children without parents. You see sex trafficking, sexual perversion, sexual confusion, anxiety, depression, suicide, divorce, dishonesty, incompetent and corrupt politics and politicians. You see addiction to drugs, addiction to alcohol, addiction to pornography, addiction to social media, addiction to video games, addiction to money, addiction to anything and everything that gives instant gratification and pleasure in the moment. We look around the world and we see this everywhere. But forget the world. Forget looking out there. Look within yourself. What do you, what do you see in yourself? Selfishness? Greed? Lust? Dishonesty? Idolatry? Hatred? Anger? Pride? Criticism? Low self-esteem, discontentment, discouragement, materialism, confusion, longing, unrest. All of this, all of this is the result of sin in the world and in our own hearts. Sin has poisoned humanity. Sin has destroyed our ability to do the very thing we were created for, which was to glorify God through a perfect, intimate relationship with Him and one another. And instead, the price that we now deserve to pay, just like Adam and Eve, for our sin, it is death. It is an eternity cast away from the love and relational presence of our Creator. And there is not one person in the world who does not deserve that price. The distance the world is, and the distance you and I are from the perfection and intimacy that we see in the garden is immeasurable. So let me ask you a question. Do you think a Christmas experience, a perfect Christmas moment, has the power to redeem you from all of that? Right? Will singing the right songs or eating the right food or giving or receiving the perfect gift or being with the best people, as wonderful as those are, will they change the state of the world? Will they change your own heart? They will not. They will not. They might for a brief moment cause you to forget about it. It might mask reality for a brief moment, but masking the sin and depravity and hurt in the world and in your own heart with a Christmas carol and warm wishes, it is not what you need. We don't need a mask. We don't need a temporary moment of good feelings. We need redemption. We need to be released from our sin. 
And God, in his grace and mercy, has been pursuing a release from sin since the moment Adam and Eve were cast out of his presence. And we certainly don't have time to walk through every moment, every detail that we see of this pursuit. But it is fair to say that the entire Old Testament is pointing ahead to the source of our redemption. When God calls Abraham, we are pointed ahead to the source of our redemption. When we read of the Passover and the escape from Egypt, we read of the source. It's pointing ahead to the source of our redemption. When we read about the tabernacle being instructed, we're being pointed ahead to the source of our redemption. The day of atonement, the building of the temple, it's all pointing ahead to the source of our redemption. And all of the prophets that we read of in the Old Testament, they point ahead to the source of our redemption. Maybe most clearly, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 9. If you have your Bibles, you want to flip to Isaiah chapter 9. Starting in verse 2, it says this. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloody garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. In other words, darkness will give way to light. Depression will give way to joy. Slavery will give way to freedom. War will give way to peace. The people held captive by the chains of sin will be released. Through what means? Verse 6. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The prophet Isaiah had promised the coming of a child for the redemption of humanity. And for centuries, the world waited for this child to come, and they waited, and they waited, and they waited. Until the time, as we read in Galatians, came to completion. And this time, Luke spells out for us in chapter 2. He says this. This is the familiar Christmas passage. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. It sounds like any old humble birth at this point, except that it was in a barn. But then we get to verse 8, and we see this was no ordinary birth. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. 
and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, a Messiah, the Lord. A Savior. A Messiah, the one who Isaiah promised would come and redeem humanity from the shackles of sin. This child, this day, was born to redeem humanity, to redeem us. Now remember, redemption, it's the release or recovery of persons. Jesus came to release us from the bondage of sin and death and the destruction that we see that it causes, not less than our eternal Condemnation that we deserve. He came to release us from sin. What did he come to recover us for? Do you know what he came to recover us for? He came to recover our relationship with our creator. Remember the relationship that Adam and Eve had with God back in the garden. That perfect intimacy where they walked with God. Jesus came to recover that. For you and I. He came so that we might once again walk in perfect relationship with God. You know the verse John 3.16. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son. He sent Jesus. Why? So that everyone who believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. So Jesus came to give us eternal life. But then John tells us in chapter 17 verse 3 what eternal life is. He says this is eternal life. That they know you. The one true God and the one you have sent Jesus Christ. Jesus came so that we might know God. Not just know about God. But to actually know God, to be in his presence, to have a relationship, an intimate relationship with our creator. Jesus came to redeem us, to release us from our sin and to recover us for a relationship with our creator. But remember our definition of redemption. Redemption means to secure the release or recovery of a person or persons or things By what? By the payment of a price. What was the price of our redemption? It was his life. We celebrate the birth of Jesus, but we understand Jesus was born so that he would die. Jesus came to die, but not just that. He came to die in your place. See, the point of Jesus' life, the reason we celebrate Jesus, it's not just because he was a great teacher. He didn't just come to set a good moral example for us to follow. He didn't just come to disrupt society by showing kindness to the marginalized and oppressed. Jesus, God, the Son, the author and giver of life, perfect in every way, deserving of all praise and worship, came to die so that you and I sinful, proud, broken people, fully deserving of judgment and death, would not have to. Jesus came to redeem you, to release you from your sin and the consequence it deserves, and to restore you back to a relationship with God. This is why Jesus was born. 
This is Christmas. And so here's the question. If this is, if, if this is Christmas, then how does this become Christmas to us? How does this become Christmas to you and I? How does the meaning of Christmas become our meaning of Christmas? And to answer that, I've got two points of application for you this morning. Number one, receive Christ. Receive Christ. We, we walked through almost the whole story of redemption. You know, another word that we can use for this story of redemption, it is the gospel. And I think Anchor words are very helpful when trying to synthesize or remember a story. And so here are some anchor words for you as we think about this. Number one, God. Okay, God exists. He created everything, including people. And because he created everything, he is the authoritative ruler. He is the standard bearer for what is good and right. So number one, God. Number two, people. God created people for the purpose of knowing him and walking with him and enjoying him and loving him according to his standard that he set as the authoritative lawgiver. Number three, sin. People can't do that because of sin. Sin is humanity's greatest problem. It is your greatest problem. It is my greatest problem. It always will be. No matter what happens with world wars, with elections, with climate change, with the border, with the economy, sin will always be our greatest problem. Number four, Jesus. Jesus came. God sent his son, Jesus, to fix this problem. The son of God came to earth as a human, a little baby, so that he could receive the punishment for sin that we deserve through his death on the cross. He came to take away our greatest problem. But there's one more anchor word that we need if we are to fully understand redemption. And that word is faith. See, Jesus has offered you eternal life. He has offered you redemption as a free gift. But you must receive it. You don't receive it by trying to be a good person or going to church more in the coming year. That's not how we can receive the gift that Jesus has for us. That's not how we receive redemption. How do we receive it? We receive it by faith. When you think about the depth of the brokenness in the world and in our own heart, it becomes evident that there's no good thing that we can do that's going to fix that brokenness, right? If, if you break your leg, you don't think, oh, I should get a Band-Aid, right? A Band-Aid is not going to fix a broken leg. Similarly, good works do not heal our brokenness. We need something different. We need Christ, and he is ours if we simply receive him by faith. In other words, we accept that he is who he says he is. He did what he did. And that he and he alone is sufficient to redeem us. So how does the meaning of Christmas become our meaning of Christmas? Number one, you must receive Christ. Number two, rejoice in Christ. 
Rejoice in Christ. If you have received Christ, rejoice in Him. Worship Him. Look to Him. Enjoy a family. Enjoy food. Enjoy your tradition this holiday. But allow your hearts to rejoice fully and completely in Christ, who He is, and what He has done for us. As we close in worship this morning, I want to encourage you to rejoice. Rejoice in Jesus, the Son of God, who took on flesh to redeem us from our sin and to redeem us for God. Let's pray.